You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined by Sean and not Rick. It's too early in the morning for Rick, I think. Instead, I'm joined by Ben O'Brien with Curve Games. He is a marketing specialist and a graphic designer. We've had the pleasure of working with him on several projects. Welcome to the show, Ben. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Sean. It's been a little while since um, since our days back at Modifius working together um, with you. <laughs> Which is yeah. which has been a been a while. Yeah, yeah, and originally I think it was with the um total war Rome total war campaign. So it uh, was. We, we kind of were following each other around the place. <laughs> we first clashed swords, yeah. At, at, um, when I was at PSC Games working on the total war campaign, which was a very very successful campaign um, during that period of time, and we couldn't have done it without your help. So that was amazing. And then you continued to support me and Modifius incredibly well, sort of working weekly together, didn't we? Which was. It was a very successful relationship that we've had so far. Yeah, it's, it's great to see where you're heading off and working now in the video game industry, right? Yeah, big old change, um, swapping from uh, tabletop to video games. Actually, saying that, I went to EGX yesterday, um, the video game convention, and I did see a ton of um, board game content there. So there is there is a clear sort of direct path between tabletop games and, and video games and a lot of players, and it's that offline versus online uh, depending on your job role, what you do. If you work on a computer, I suppose you wanna you wanna detach yourself from from video um, video games and screens, and it's the opposite for other people. Well, this yeah. is it's really interesting with, with something like For the King. I know this is the game that you're the company you're currently with uh, created because I got that in 2017, quite a while quite a while ago now. <laughs> and I originally got that because it was like, oh, this looks like a great Christmas game. I could put, I can bring this to the in-laws, and we could set it up on the on the screen because it's turn based. And we can essentially have a board game experience, but all in front of the, the TV. I thought that was sort of a better way to play than to just watch a film together or something. So that's that's why I got it. So I didn't have lots of hours clocked in because it's something I kind of got as like a family experience. But it's interesting you kind of have these games coming out now, which are sort of combining the, the best of both worlds, the kind of the digital elements with this kind of turn-based, um, everybody involved interaction as well. Yeah, absolutely. They are they're becoming incredibly popular. Um, I mean, just look at the success of Baldur's Gate three um, recently on on Steam. Like we were we were speaking to some people um, yesterday at Larian, and they were saying that they did not expect the success of Baldur's Gate three and how huge it was going to be. So they've been rushing around trying to acquire people to help support um, support that project. And it's the same with For the King too, actually. So For the King actually started off as a board game. Um, the company, that the devs that designed it, um, designed the game to be a board game and were going to um, originally kickstart that, but instead they did uh, For the King, the, um, the video game. And obviously that saw an incredible amount of success, um, which leads into the launch of For the King 2, which is in about three weeks. So we've got all hands on deck here at Curve Games, which is, it's an interesting time. Um, everyone's putting all their projects to the side um, and sort of focusing on, on the release of that. But it's, it's really, really um, taken off in the last few years, sort of turn-based video games and sort of that that crossover between board games and video games. It's a great way to play together, especially in Baldur's Gate. It's pure chaos. For the king, you're a bit more structured with your decisions and your turn-based turn-based actions, but it's, it's an incredibly fun and refreshing way to play video games. You know, I think that uh, video games and board games share two really essential things in common. And uh, the, the it's like they're, they're delivery systems for the exact same feelings. What, what, I, what I find is that the experience is what people want. It's like, why would you go to Hawaii for the experience, right? 
why would you play Baldur's Gate 3? For the experience. You want to experience something new, something that's different, that you haven't experienced before, the legendary stories of Skyrim or whatever, right? And then, so that I think is really shared between board games and video games, experiencing something new. And the, so the theme, I think, is, is only going to get more important in board games. And of course, video games, it's, it's always been very, very important, central to the, uh, the game that you're playing. But the, uh, the, and that's why I personally think that kind of pasted on themes are going to be diminished. Maybe I should save this for my 2024 <laughs> predictions, but, um, you know, for board games, pasted on themes, if it could be a different theme, it should, you know, it, it, it should probably change somehow. The other concept is that, I, that I think video games and board games share together is that players want to feel smart. You know, they want to make meaningful decisions and feel clever. And I think that games like Baldur's Gate that aren't necessarily like I remember back in the day playing Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance on uh, PlayStation one or two. And it was Baldur's Gate that was a linear kind of like Diablo clone that you just only had one direction to go. And my wife and I, it was like her first video game that she played since like Sonic the Hedgehog. And so, you know, <laughs> we're playing and um, she's just like getting mad at me when I pick up the gold first, even though the gold splits evenly, you know, when you pick it up, she's like mad that I picked it up and <laughs> stuff like that. But uh, the, the, like you want to feel smart and clever. And there were bosses in there that were really hard that it's like, all right, you got to stay out of the way and whatever. And my wife had so much fun, but for me as a veteran, I'm just like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I see the mechanics, you know, I see like the red ring of death. If you stand here, you die. It just stand outside of the red ring of death while my wife does not see the red ring she just sees this giant bumblebee <laughs> monster chasing after her trying to sting her you know and um it was just super fun so that was a fun experience for me but i think that the the concept of feeling clever feeling smart it just boils down to like making meaningful decisions right and i think um turn-based that is really what that's all about it's like this is your chance to do well or to do poorly based on the decision you make right now it's your turn in so. terms of marketing, it, there's lots of avenue to expand success because there's so much overlap. So, and we're starting to see this, right? We have, you know, Skyrim, the board game, and as you talk, Total War Realm, the board game. So we're seeing these big IPs becoming board games and then vice versa. We're seeing kind of Gloomhaven entering the, the video game space. And so it, it kind of means that if you're a, a gaming developer and you create a success, well, you have an avenue to expand that success into a different adjacent avenue. So that, that's really exciting. I know, Andrew, you're working on video games for Deliverance, so you already sort of have a, have a finger in that pie, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because when, um, you know, if you look at movies, movies used to be, like you look back into like the 70s, Alien came out and um, Star Wars came out and a lot of other, you know, brand new, very innovative intellectual properties that are just being milked for all their worth and more until they're husks of their what what they used to be. You know, Disney has taken Marvel and and Star Wars and you name it, right? I mean, there's Star Trek, which is has a bunch of series coming up because those are tried and true, is what it comes down to. And mm -hmm. I think that you need to kind of before you get started and before an executive spends tens of millions of dollars on you for your idea, it it really, really helps if you know, that person can look at another project and say, well, wow, they're very successful in this vertical. People, there is a clear demand for this. 
you know, maybe if it's a board game like Gloomhaven, the board game industry is smaller than, than the video game industry by several orders of magnitude. But if Gloomhaven rises to the very top of the board game industry, that says a lot about its potential for video games. So it's a it's a natural, I guess, you know, for a company that is ready, that that needs a product to work on or whatever, that's a great opportunity for them. And I think that we've seen this a number of, of, of places. One of them, probably the first one being Mice and Mystics. Uh, that was a board game, kind of a, a lighter dungeon crawl board game that got a movie deal. Um, I haven't heard where that's going yet. I know that uh, I believe Catapult Kingdoms, you know, Constantinos with uh, Vesuvius Media, they have mm -hmm. some sort of video game deal with Catapult Kingdoms. Uh, you know, there, there are many others that are kind of following. But I think that for for what I've seen for Deliverance, you know, I have this this IP that's kind of like my baby, the thing that I've been working on for a very long time and and all. And um, I'm thinking, you know, I can I can come up with expansions and continue to grow the audience. And I think that it can be you know, a million dollar Kickstarter, multi-million dollar um, product line of board games. But um, how do you grow into something bigger? How do you make a hundred million? And you can't do that in in, in the board game space. Uh, well, it's, it's I'll put it this way, it hasn't been done yet uh, in the board game space, other than the classics that have been around since the 1930s, like Monopoly. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is you want to expand into different verticals. So you have the same intellectual property, the natural two places to expand would be into video games and into novels, video games, books, yeah. graphic novels. So yeah, and I think conversion from board games to video games that way around is a lot more conventional because you already have the brand at hand. Like you've already performed, um, you've already performed well. You've shown it can be a success in one space. Whereas video games and sort of converting them back to board games or role playing games can be a lot more difficult. And I've noticed that. Both crowds can be very critical, um, depending on what you produce, because everyone's got their own idea of what the game should be, what what things it should be featured, or what what uh, identities of the game should be featured within it. And I think that can be a huge issue in converting the other way around, um, because video games offer you that holistic experience where you're able to go do essentially anything you possibly can imagine, especially how big games are getting now, where you're looking at like cyberpunk and and things like even at Modifius, like Skyrim. Like, how do you condense Skyrim down to a, a war game how do you condense Skyrim down to a board game I mean Chris Birch did an incredible job of converting it back to a board game it really does feel like Skyrim where you're getting distracted with the quests you feel like you can go do whatever you want you're all playing together at the same time you're all taking your actions relatively at, at similar times we played for like four hours and we only got through like 15 percent of the game which was great because it really um reflects sort of Skyrim's identity very well um on the tabletop which was it's just it's fun but it's very difficult um, because, like I said, like everyone has their specific ideas of what the game should be, what makes it fun, what what part of the games are fun for them. And unfortunately, not everyone agrees on that. So yeah. when you produce a product the other way around, it can be a very interesting talking point yeah. amongst consumers about whether they feel that you've done a good job. And it can come across very negatively a lot of the time. It can A lot of these products can can build up with negative comments very quickly if you're not careful and you don't really want to be spending a lot of your time sort of tending to those negative comments um and changing the game because essentially like it is what the game is to you um and i feel like if you've done a good representation of it the, the crowd should agree in some some capacity but there are of course been a lot of games out there that have been converted like you said that are just attack on like they're not they don't reflect the game in, in any way you you question whether these people have actually 
even played the video game when you've started playing some of these tabletop games like uh, how inaccurately represented it is and it's an easy cash grab for some companies isn't it i know i can't remember who produced the call of duty board game recently but that was one and i just thought that's an incredibly mm-hmm. monumental task to try and pick a part out of call of duty to represent mm-hmm. as well as possible in a board game uh, it's, yeah. it's that's an incredible feat if you can pull that off but i don't know how it's done with um, a pre-recording of 12 year olds swearing at you, <laughs> <laughs> you, just, you just that way you play yeah you just get the lobby yeah. the lobby cuts uh coming through yeah. there's like an insult button <laughs> yeah you know Call I feel of like Duty was one of those games that um that it actually did much more poorly than i expected and okay. it was produced by a company um arcane wonders just really tried to treat it well but it wasn't received well and i think that the reason for that was when um and i looked deep into this one because i was like this should be multi-million dollar you know, and um, mm-hmm. the uh, basically the players ended up not liking the way that a lot of the dice would work or a lot of the, the mitigations. Sometimes um, you jump on, you know, you get the jump on somebody, you should be able to whip them. But with the way the mechanics worked, if you had a bad die roll, it was like, you know, you just <laughs> missed your shot or whatever when you're one space away or something. It um, it felt it, it didn't feel very rewarding for clever for playing in a clever manner. And I think that that is really what it came down to is that there were players that said, I'm upset about this game because it, it the randomness overtook my clever play. And I did not like that. And that was all over board game geek. And so, you know, there were there that that's kind of was really the player base rebelling and getting upset. And it reminds me of there's this, um, this experience I had in college. So, uh, so anyway, I, I met my future wife in this particular class. It was called organizational behavior. And I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I loved this class. I got like 100% on every test, every quiz, everything. I just loved and ate it up. This particular class was, um, uh, there was an experiment that was done where you had the class bring a dollar each. And it was, it was just this game that we didn't really understand. You know, the teacher was like, all right, everybody's going to bring a dollar. Um, we, and we're, we showed up that day. Everybody brought a dollar. We brought a few extra dollars in case somebody missed or whatever, so that everybody could have a dollar. There were about 40 people in the class, so $40. Now, the, um, the class was split into three groups of people. It was split into upper management, middle management, and the working class. And the upper management was three people, middle management was seven, and the working class was 30. And before we split into our groups, the the rules were as follows. The end product needed to be something, whatever we decided to do with that $40, that was the end product. You know, come up with an idea for how to use the $40. What, what What do you want to do? Now, the $40 was given to upper management. Those three members were put in a room separate from everyone else. The middle management was put in, a, uh, which I was actually a part of the middle management, uh, was put in a different room. And the way the communication was allowed to work was like this. The upper management was allowed to communicate with middle management or the working class. The middle management was allowed to communicate with the working class by sending a single representative. So the working class was not allowed to communicate with anyone. They were only allowed to be communicated with. And so here I am in my little middle management bubble and I'm in the class is two hours. So I'm working with my seven or six other people 
thinking about what what are great ideas that we can use to you know to figure out how to use this this dollar and it took about 45 minutes we were all like super engaged it took about 45 minutes for an upper management person to come and say okay upper management we de- we decided like this is kind of what we think would be a good idea and we were like oh yeah well great here are all of our ideas and then that upper management person took our ideas back to the upper management group about 15 20 minutes later they came back and were like all right yeah well this is what we think of the top couple all right let's let's tell our ideas to the working class it's time now so we each sent a a um representative and the working class was 30 members equal of course in in class to one another but it was split up in this strange way and they had ideas too and they had been talking about ideas and whatnot but it had been almost an hour and a half by the time that anybody went to them to figure out what it was that they thought and we went to them with all of our ideas they shot every idea down with prejudice they were pissed and we ended up just scrapping every idea and saying whatever let's just buy lottery tickets let's just be over this you know <laughs> and they gave the money to me and i bought lottery tickets it was just the dumbest conclusion that uh you know people were like let's make a paper airplane factory let's do something you know they, they had super fun ideas that would have been awesome and it was completely destroyed by a failure to communicate. It taught me this lesson that was so valuable that no matter how great your ideas are, the failure to communicate with, in this case, kind of bringing it back to relevance with your backers or with the audience is going to make them rebel if you get it wrong or if if they don't feel heard. And um, it was such a powerful lesson that I, I took that with me as a marketer. I think, you know, I... If anything, I'm going to communicate too much, you know, rather than too little. Communicating more often is probably for the best. So, and I actually kind of bring it back to that Call of Duty analogy. I think that there was so much internal development that happened on that game, and there wasn't maybe enough external facing playtesting. Like maybe, maybe there are you know feedback sessions or whatever, um, you know, so that by the time it actually launched on Kickstarter. I think that Arcane Wonders had no idea that it would be received poorly. And so that I would say is probably a, a just an unfortunate lesson, a very timely lesson that was just at the very worst time. But I think that it, for me, it kind of boils down to that, that crazy experience I had in organizational behavior, getting forced by my classmates to buy lottery tickets. I didn't even check if we won anything. It's just like so embarrassing, you know? Yeah. I think that's a problem with scale because when these IPs get so big, they have such large fan bases from so many different backgrounds and different interests that they're all going to have a say and eventually you're just going to have competing conflicting opinions so i think yeah. as a as a developer you have to say well we're just going to draw the line here and just we're going to go we're going to upset some people we just have to we have to keep on pushing ahead so i think that is the problem with big ip such as call of duty or skyrim and whatever ip but one thing i'd like to um maybe just cover quickly i know that you, you yeah. You talked about releasing some things on Steam, and you've also released things on Kickstarter in terms yeah. of market, marketed them. Has there been any similarities between the two platforms? You know, I know that with Steam, a, a large part of it is getting people in the game so that in their friends list, it says, you know, so and so is playing this game, and 
And Kickstarter is, is quite similar in terms of people who back games and then gets pushed out to all their friends saying, my friend just backed this game, check it out. So there are similarities. Have you noticed that as well? And uh, Or have there been some massive differences? Do you want to maybe talk about the similarities and differences? Yeah, sure. I think um, a video game uh, launch can be similar to a Kickstarter project. So for example, like wish lists on Steam are incredibly similar to the notify me on launch button on Kickstarter. They're essentially the same thing. It's just a way of people showing interest where you can communicate with them regularly via Steam news posts. And you can do the same um, on GameFound, unfortunately not through Kickstarter, but you can still do the same thing on GameFound via the, um, the update section. I mean, these people are still consumers who are at the very top of your funnel and basically just show basic interest in the product. Um, so they're, they're similar in that capacity. And at Modifius, we used to also collect email addresses to nurture those leads in advance of the launch date um, if we were running a campaign on Kickstarter. So it's very, very similar in, the, in uh, they sort of cut from the same cloth in that sense. Um, and you can um, sort of use similar tactics in Steam. So you can gain that momentum, create the hype um, and generate excitement all the leading up to launch, um, which is, which I found. There is a bigger difference. So with so I've just been working on a game called From Space that has been out on Steam for a year. And it's now being ported over to um, Xbox and PlayStation. It's, it's gone to Game Pass. It's gone to both the Xbox and PlayStation stores. And um, that campaign has relied heavily on first-party support from Xbox and PlayStation themselves, which you don't really find too much in um, in board game. Obviously, you've got Board Game Geek, you've got a bunch of like sort of go-to channels that you'll that you'll visit um, to promote your campaign. But when it comes to a huge quantities of support um, from very large outlets, Xbox and PlayStation, if you can get their support. You have to run through portals. You have to jump through hoops. Like it's a very interesting uh, course that you have to take to acquire that support. But it's so worth it. Like I mean, Xbox just tweeted uh, a few days. Or it might have been on the fifth or the third, um, announcing that From Space was coming to uh, coming to Xbox, and that that tweet alone gained nine hundred thousand impressions. So like, and that was just a tweet. So I mean, it was like seven thousand likes, like a, a few hundred retweets. So. If PlayStation, you can get PlayStation's YouTube. Um, they tend to upload videos straight direct to there as well. Um, so yeah, first party support is incredibly large. A lot of um, it's split really. So you've got the influencer strategy, which is very similar. You'll be more focused on live plays, I think, with with video games. So you'll be focused on Twitch users. Um, but again, you'll still have that support. So the similarities are there um, via YouTubers. So obviously, with a Kickstarter campaign, you get your you get your seven, eight, nine, ten uh, YouTubers to all produce a review, preview, gameplay videos, and we do something similar on launch at Curve Games with our influencer manager, who then works with agencies to um, to acquire players. And the one we've done recently is is really intuitive because it's like a cooperative game. So we've managed to get streamers to all play together in the same room at the same time, which has mm-hmm. been a fun a fun campaign to run otherwise asia support that's a big one that's completely different for board games we don't really focus specifically on regions i found in board games like it's more of a worldwide strategy that we just push through and we aim for times that are good for everyone so we aim for like 6 p.m updates or like launches or something that will that will hit the evenings in australia um, and hit the mornings in in uh in america um but there's a whole Asian um, audience out there that are heavily, heavily invested in in video games. And we've seen a huge amount of success over there. So we do have Asia strategies run specifically for certain campaigns. Press releases are very similar. We'll run one for an announcement, one for launch. So um, if that's something that's 
if you're on a, if you've got a bit more of a budget i mean you, it's one thing you can do by yourself if you've got the time i know chris birch used to do it um before or sort of like during the early days of Medifis, he used to have he's told me he used to have like hundreds of email addresses of press contacts and he used to go through and individually email each one of them and i know a lot of people have talked about this in other podcasts as well. Like if you want to grow, you have to put the work in. And it's totally true. It's worked out for Chris um, massively. So these things like press releases you can do if you want to put the time in. I know it does take up a lot of time to get the re- to do the research and acquire those email addresses and build relationships, but it's so worth it. It's incredibly worth it. So you've got that side of things as well. Artwork, again, is completely, it's, it's similar. Um in some ways, uh, like making sure that the Steam pages are up to date, that the page looks great, a lot more screenshots um, that we're showing of the game. We really need to try and convince people that it's a cool game because you've got that, you've got that first ten seconds of looking at the Steam page and like, is this the game for me? And if it doesn't look like the game for that person, then you're just going to switch them off. And you have that similarity with Kickstarter. Like you need to punch them in the face. Like as soon as they land on that Kickstarter page, you need to hit them with what it is that they that they should be excited about. And I noticed some companies fail to do that. They sort of they pick the wrong elements of what they think is interesting to people. They don't do the market research, just like you were talking about in your in your story, Angela. They don't do the market research, essentially, from people to find out what it is they're interested in. What's the current, um, like, I mean, like racing games have been incredibly popular recently in the tabletop games industry. So they're just finding out what the current theme is, what the current hotness is, um, what mechanics are people into. And right now it's turn-based, which is great for us because we're about to release For the King 2. And because people love Baldur's Gate, they love the exploration sort of style games, Starfield. There's a lot coming out out there. And I noticed that board games do a, a, a sort of heading down that avenue as well. Mm-hmm. But there's, so that, yeah, sorry, there's, there's just a lot of similarities when launching a Kickstarter and launching a game. A lot of the same processes. The teams just tend to be bigger in video games, so you get a lot more support. Whereas board games, you are sort of scrambling about to do a lot of things yourself. Um, yeah. which I'm sure a lot of people can resonate with. Like you, you put on a lot of hats in board games, whereas video games, you get a lot of support from those individual departments and people that really know what they're doing, which is incredibly helpful. Yeah. It's nice when you can only focus on like one or two things rather than all the things. Um, yes. That's always been my challenge and why, uh, frankly, I hire people is because I can't, I, I just don't have the ability to focus on everything. Um, there's no possible way to survive for for long. I mean, I it's like I I look back and you know when I like for example I used to design all our websites. It's like how in the world did I do that? You know, like I just have so much to do as it is, and it's like you know completely impossible. But that's what you have to do as a board game publisher. Yeah. And what it kind of comes down to for me is like, you know, because I'm a board game publisher, also I think. I, there are certain things that I'm going to focus on and prioritize. Other things that need doing are just not going to get done because they are not as uh, important as the uh, the kind of most urgent issues that I must focus on first. <clears throat> Other times, you know, I, I box it in, like, for example, uh, customer support. I, I will do all of that on Monday. And if somebody sends in a ticket on Tuesday, then I'll try to get to it. But I really can't just, it's like checking your email 12 times a day. Uh, you know, you're just going to have 12 instances of time where you lose focus. So I, I have to, in essence, eventually hire somebody for that or which actually I, I, I just did or do it all myself in like one compact period of time in, in order to focus. And I think that's one thing that board game designers, um, you know, publishers tend to tend to do. But um, 
man, it's, it's, it's wild. And I, I will say, you know, to your point, when you said, you know, you've got that uh, Jeremy Howard back in, gosh, I don't know, it was like episode seven or something I, I, early on in our podcast, we talked about the Kickstarter page, like elements of a successful Kickstarter page. And I'd love to get into that actually with you because you, you're a talented graphic designer that has worked on several Kickstarter pages. But what I love is that you have a marketing brain that you use with your graphic design skill. And so let's, let's get into that soon. But um, the, uh, the, as a, as a publisher of a thing that I've been working on for, for, you know, deliverance has been seven years. I know everything there is to know about this game. I just don't know what order it matters to tell people, right? I know all the things, but for my own project, which what's the what's the hook? How shall I describe it? You know, and it's not what I think the hook is, it's what my customers, my audience thinks the hook is. And segueing into this the homeworld campaign, um, you did an excellent job. Just, you know, I know you you were like probably the lead on the the homeworld. Um, it was a game found campaign that did really well, but you know, one single scroll gets you to the hook, which is large scale, fast paced fleet battles. If you want to have large scale, fast paced yeah. fleet battles, <laughs> it's exactly like I was saying, punch them in the face with with that one liner, just sort of showing yeah. them what the game's about. I think it needs to be bright, bold, colorful, um, in your face. Like if you're if you're welcome with like a dull page that looks deep mysterious like you're just already going into that that huge field of of games that sort of represent themselves that way or like I, I find it strange that like there's some companies out there that will go straight into the minis like the first thing they do is just like don't tell you anything about what the game is how it plays what the theme is and you sort of have to sort of like trawl through to try and get that understanding or even find out what you're purchasing you don't get to that like three quarters of the way down the page I think that's crazy. Um, I think it genuinely is crazy. Like people, there was a period of time where people just loved minis. Um, I think that is still relevant, but it is dulling down a bit and people are becoming wiser. Um, there's only so much you can run with the theme before it sort of spins around. And of course they'll come back in a few years time. Like they will, like things, things always do the rounds, but yeah, it's just really interesting. The amount of companies out there that don't really get to the, they don't just bite down on, on, on what it is that the yeah. game can deliver you and the experience it can offer you like it's like we were talking about earlier like it's that immersion that escapism like what problems will you have to solve in the game what makes it fun um but a lot of companies just show content immediately like oh here's here's everything that's in the game and it's, or the worst it's, is like the long introduction it's like i'm gonna give you yeah. a four paragraph <laughs> introduction into the that's story. not ideal either yeah they're completely opposite end of the of the scale where they over explain what's going on and it's just a wall of text that's something you really want to avoid as well so i think having like sharp punchy headlines um led by like really interesting exciting graphics that that show off the majority of the game it doesn't have to be big it can just show off the majority of the game so within one scroll they know exactly what it is that they'll be backing um and if they want to find out more they'll find out more it's like people's attention spans are just unfortunately getting smaller and smaller due to things like TikTok and, and mm. short form content constantly being pumped out and we're just expecting more and more. So people do have that that 10 mm. second look. And if they don't like it, there's, there's, there's so many projects on Kickstarter, so many projects yeah. on GameFound, like you need to give them a reason mm -hmm. to stop by and look at yours and at least go for two to three scrolls um, yeah. to find out more. You know, it's so interesting because one of the, one of the bits of feedback that I received, we recently um, sent deliverance out to the majority of our backers and UK is probably happening um, next week or, or maybe today. Uh, but the, um, and then the EU is going to happen in a couple of weeks. One thing that many of our backers, like, I mean, dozens have told me 
is that the product that they received was way cooler than <laughs> what they expected. And I, the, and the reason for that, you know, just as I talk with them about this, and again, I'm, I'm not exaggerating on the dozens of conversations that I've had about this exact topic was that the, the images that I used on Kickstarter do not do the product justice at all. The product is way cooler than the images that I, that I had. And part of that is due to the fact that we had two additional years of development and, and manufacturing and working on things to make it more awesome between the time that the Kickstarter happened and the time that people received their product, you know, maybe like a year and a half, right? You know, let's, let's say if I were to take the exact same game and go to Kickstarter again, which we're planning on next year, we're going to go with an expansion. I need to find a way to make that, that, that game, you know, that deliverance look so awesome. It just not, I mean, I guess maybe that's the wrong phrase to use. I'm not, looking to make it look so awesome. Of course, people want awesomeness, but I just want to make it look like it actually is. And how mm -hmm. do I do that? It's a really awesome game. It's a really fantastic. I mean, it displays beautifully. People are taking pictures of it and it's like incredible on the table. And, you know, I just, how do you do that with like 3D renders or with art? Like what, what advice would you have for somebody like me? That's like, yeah. I know what I, I just don't have the skill to do it myself, you know? I think, we're, so like, uh, there's two big projects I was a part of. So like Total War Rome and Homeworld. So we've got Total War Rome and Homeworld. So we've got one that's sci-fi and one that's like historical. So with both of them campaigns, you'll notice there's a, there's a stark difference between the way I designed them. Total War Rome is very, very deep in the theme of medieval um and total war rome the, the the video game so you've got blood splatters you've got you've got the the gray scrolls you've got the board coming out um you've got the romans the romans speaking to you in the video you've got a really great video asset produced by ori which i know you've had on the podcast fantastic to work with um we're really showing off all of the artwork in sort of this this medieval style with smoke behind them and bits and pieces. So we're just really delving into the theme of, of sort of like total war um, and then the history behind the game. And with oppositely with Homeworld, like it's, it's all space themed. So you've got like galaxies, you've got, um, you really want to kind of make the, the people feel like they're really immersed in the world. Like this is something that I really want to play. I want to, I mean, the reason why people play a lot of games is they enjoy getting lost in them. They enjoy that immersion. They enjoy just being taken away from reality for, for a set period of time and if you can do that with a kickstarter page i think that naturally translates to the to the game itself i mean of course like beautiful shots of minis will always help like they always will like they're gorgeous i know awaken realms do a fantastic job of um of displaying their miniatures across their games like their, their renders are absolutely gorgeous and i think that definitely helps but if you can theme around the miniatures um whilst getting the most important information across i think that's that's really beneficial and i also think with with you releasing the game already, I think public perception will help already. If people have already seen it, I think it's a cool game. It should naturally step up people's interest in the game and its perception of the game of like, okay, this is a real game now. It exists. Um, it looks beautiful. So the next time round, you can really play on like the final product um, and what's to come of that. I think I think that my main point is just make the people feel like they've just stepped into a completely different world whatever that is like whatever that may be so if it's high fancy you want to make them feel like they've just been transported to this world that you've generated um really sort of like give them a massive cuddle of like of, of the world and just be like huddle them and be like there is nothing else that matters at this point um it just looks so beautiful 
and it sounds like a you game. And I do think you can alienate some people that way, but I think it's better to acquire a high level, way more interested individuals than a bunch of people are like, eh, I'll give this a go. Because naturally they'll they'll market your game for you. They'll expand your interest, they'll expand your audience with people that really matter and really care about the game. Um, a game shouldn't be for, with a pinch of salt, a game shouldn't be for everyone. Right. It should be for a particular someone. Like if your game's for everyone, I think you failed. I think you really need to make it feel like as a person, if I'm browsing through this page, this game feels like it's for me. I'd much rather put it in the hands of, of 50,000 people that really want and will love this game than 100,000 people that would be like, yeah, it's, a, it's an okay game. It gets right. a six rating on, on BGG. Like, I think it's so important to really tailor your page and your marketing to that, to the campaign itself and the game itself. Yeah. And, and sorry, in the show notes, we will include links to both of those campaigns. You, you discussed Homeworld and Total War, so people can compare them. But I, I know one time, one of our weekly pause back in the past, we had a look at, I, it was one campaign and I just remember it was scrolling forever. So that's probably something to also be uh, aware of. Is that we kind of we kind of joke because we were there for it felt like about five <laughs> minutes just scrolling. We just never got to the bottom. So um, is that something that people should be aware of as well? Kind of the infinite scroll is it good or is it bad? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean the homebrew page is long. It is a very very long uh, page, um, and I think it might be too long. Looking back on it now, um, we definitely could have shorten down some of the content but again there's so much we want to talk about in that in that project so for homeworld like we wanted to talk about going from back to front we wanted to talk about sort of like brand identity um and sort of that confidence in a project by talking about modifius itself um what our plan schedule is like we'd like to include that so people have confidence in that we're actually able to produce this um produce this product and it's going to come to your table um we've got all our social channels in there so shipping prices it, it never ends like what all the information that we have and a lot of that does help support the campaign again videos as well when you're scroll, scrolling back up through it like how many videos is is the optimal amount of videos who do you have on your videos like and how long do you want to make that section and i noticed like a lot of people will just dump the video in there um so i've done it two different ways so in on on homeworld i i put the the video links and drop them right in there so they do take up a lot a, a larger section of the of the page but with total war i just did banners essentially where you just click out and you go view the view the youtube video elsewhere so there are small ways you can save space um it's difficult to say whether it's beneficial or not to remove some of these things and i think like that project we were talking about sean it it does take away from the immersion. Like when you get so far in, you're just, you're, you're scrolling forever. And it's just like, when does this end? Like, what do I know about the game by this point? And I think, I think a lot of um, publishers get lost in this um, before launching a game. They know everything about the game from start to finish. They've been building that game. They've been playtesting that game for sometimes years. Um, it comes to kickstart is then okay how do I stop and explain this game to someone that has never played this before and that can be incredibly difficult for someone that knows the game inside out it shouldn't be but if you then have to um, if, if you then have to have the um, the ability to be able to explain that game in in two sent two sentences is that possible and that's the first thing you should do on your kickstart page that you should be able to explain the game in about two to three sentences mm. that summarize the excitement and everything and everything after that just sort of follows. Um, it depends on the content of your game. It, you've got some some games that are just absolutely stacked. And it's like, is it beneficial to really show 
every little tiny detail of that game and everything that comes in it because we've fallen into this trap now where it's like you have to show every component of the game you have to show every mini every dice every cube and it is because people value content now um more so than ever so they're like am i really getting my money's worth here i think if you can do that in a pretty clever way it most definitely helps um and not trying to bulk it out for the sake of it um because i noticed there are campaigns out there that just sort of go on and on and on and they're not really saying much like you're just you're scrolling and like i'm not learning anything so i think with the launch of products essentially like I love to do a SWOT analysis now. I don't think that's something that people do in board games. They don't figure out their strengths, their weaknesses, what people actually want to hear about, what they want, what they think will be talking points. They just tell people about, this game's cool, you should go buy it. And I don't think that's the best way of approaching the situation. You kind of need to think about your audience. What is they going to like about the game? How you can communicate that? What's the best type of media to communicate that? Um, whether that's a video, whether that's text, a blog, an update, like you need to be really careful about the way people get interact with your post and how you can get the best out of it. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the SWOT analysis as something I haven't heard maybe since college, <laughs> but I, I, it's so relevant. And the, uh, the, the SW is strength weaknesses and the OT is opportunities and threats, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the threats is, uh, you know, you actually come, come up with a list of threats to the success of whatever it is that you're, that you're doing. Um, I actually do think that one is a Kickstarter page that's unclear, um, or maybe uh, I wouldn't say too long. I mean, that's, you know, a given if it's quote unquote too long, then that's not good. But it, it, there's not a, a static length that, oh, it shouldn't be any longer than 12 scrolls or anything like that. Like, I mm-hmm. think that the content that you post and share on a Kickstarter game fan page needs to all have a purpose and make sense and it needs to be necessary. To post Absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, as I look back on like my deliverance campaign, one thing that I found is that uh, I actually found that Kickstarter has a bandwidth limit to uh, so that if I use images that are, you know, 100 megs, Kickstarter will take them, but <laughs> it's going to take a while for those things to load on, yeah. on other people's browsers. I didn't actually factor that in. I thought, oh, this will be fine. These, this is normal. I've never had a loading issue on Kickstarter before. But of course, I've got, you know, blazing fast internet and I didn't really <laughs> think of that. Um, so it's definitely something I'll be looking at next time as far as like the length of my images, but um, the, you know, and, and general resolution and whatnot. But also the, um, I, I, I'm going to like compact, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but my images will be a little more compact. I think that's something you did really well in you know, both Total War Rome and the Homeworld uh, pages, it felt like the images of, in particular, the what's in the box were quite compact. I think that my pledge levels and my what's in the box section was far too long. I could have probably cut cut that that size of the that section in half, um, which would have cut my Kickstarter page by like a fifth in, in length. You know, it's just such a massive section. Um, and I think that would have helped it load faster. It would have helped people get clear on what it is that they were getting and that kind of thing. Um, so I want to maybe go into like, just what essential sections are there? Um, and do you have any tips on particular sections that are like, oh man, you've got to have, like, if you have minis, you've got to show them this way. Or, you know, like, so we've got what's in the box, you know, just like a general summary, how to play, uh, you know, the introduction that you were kind of talking about, 
Um, is there anything else um, or like what essential advice do you have for people that will um, help them make better pages? Yeah, that's a good point. If I go through it from like uh, from the start, it would just help my brain process it a little bit easier. So I think, yeah, I think introduction is of the utmost importance. Like it's that it's that first the first thing that people are going to see when they go to that page. They need to know what the game's about, what they're getting themselves into, whether the theme resonates them, whether the mechanics resonate with them. This is the most essential piece on your page. Like this needs to really grab people's attention by that point. Um, and then you need to show people what's in the box in Homefield. I think we we sort of moved the what's in the box down um, and we had a thing called section called game highlights, which I think was really incredibly useful. And it was just four points about the, the most exciting things about the game. So we had like a 10 part campaign, learn as you play, which I think is really important for a lot of players because they didn't want to spend a lot of time around a rule book, the solo co-op and PvP. Um, and the fact that you could combine multiple copies of the game, which was a really USP. So we had like the core part of the game, we had the ease of entry, we had the ways of playing, and then we had something, a USP there um, to really sort of push the point home of like, this game is unique and it has something to offer you. So I think having a game highlight section after the introduction is incredibly useful. Pledge levels so people know how much they're going to be spending. Because you could get all the way down the page and you're like, well, this is great. This is awesome. This is my game. Oh, I have to spend £300 on this game or $400 or something. And it's just like, okay, I can't afford this or I'm going to have to push back on something else, which I think people do have that pledge level section way too far down the page sometimes. And it can be it can be upsetting by the time you've gone like, oh, this is awesome. I want this game. I can't afford this game. Or I guess it's, it's just a ridiculous price or it's not what I was expecting um, from going on the page. So I think presenting the price up front is super important having pledge comparisons is super helpful as well so people at a glance people that especially with the addition of stretch goals because i think it's a campaign that um the the witcher campaign did incredibly well is updating that stretch goal graphic and i'm upgrading um upgrading their pledge comparison graphic very regularly um you could really see no matter how often you spent on the page or how much you how much time you spent away from the page you could come back in two weeks and easily locate that pledge comparison graphic and see what's been updated, see what you're now getting for each pledge level. If you've got multiple pledge levels, I would say that's a definite. Um, for people that haven't visited the page before, they'll see all this extra content that you get, you're getting, and it's a great way to condense all the stretch goal content um, down to one smaller graphic. Um, we had more highlights of the game. We had a Y back now, which I think is important. Like, what is it that makes this game exciting? What exclusive content are you going to get? Are you going to be getting? Um, is there anything specific about the game that you don't know by this point that you couldn't include earlier on? Um, there has to be good offering um, if you really want to grab people like free mini or or some extra content um, behind the game that you're only going to get through the campaign itself. Um, so if you are looking for exclusive content, I think a Y back now is purposeful. If you don't, I would avoid it because people see through a lot of the smoke and mirrors now on Kickstarter and there's only so much... Um, so much you can do before people wise up um and they can see straight through tactics they're like oh well this was going to be in this game anyway or this was already sort of um folded into the into the price like so people know that already i feel like that's 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 becoming common knowledge with certain aspects so you have to really make sure that your stretch goals are presented and are actually worth the time and effort that you're that you're putting um you're putting into them if they're already additions in the game <sighs> it's just it's it's not great like it's it's not fantastic and and people can people can see through that now i don't think i don't think that's a hidden secret anymore um 
obviously stretch goals stretch goals are super important i think that graphic needs to be there limit yourself don't go crazy with stretch goals because you can just have these that was one thing okay so the it that's why the witcher kickstarter did well um but also was a huge issue for it they had so so many stretch goals and it was really difficult to keep track of that long list until you went to the pledge comparison you could see like all these small little additions of of um of what's been added to the game but like um in homeworld we had so many add-ons um sorry so many stretch goals that we had to then condense that graphic down even smaller and just have like the wording which didn't looking back on it didn't serve us well um because we made the stretch goal graphics sort of the individual sections too big so i think highlighting each individual stretch goal too much it can really sort of stretch out the page if you've got like 15 20 plus stretch goals in there and they really have to be useful so i'd say be more efficient and be more worthy of the stretch goals that you're offering. Um, and they're not just things that were going to be in the game anyway. Like they should be things that are useful, useful upgrades, um, useful content that will always add more to the game. Um, what's in the box, obviously. But again, this can be as long as you want to, to make it. Homeworld, again, was quite, it, it, it was condensed in the what's in the box section. But then we expanded into each individual box. So we had to try and show... I can't tell you how many ships um, there was like 800 ships or something stupid by the end of like, of trying to show that quantity of ships in such a short way. It proved, proved very difficult, but we didn't have like all these crazy graphics of like big ships and like having things moving around. We really just use, utilized the space in a really simple manner that reflected the, the quantity of the game. Um, how gameplay works. I think that's super important. That, uh, an easy tactic for that is if you can get someone like Ori or an animator to make your video, you can really easily just strip out sections, five second gifts out of the video um, and repurpose that um, without spending any more, any more money. If you can just learn After Effects or learn how to do this in, in, in a day, which is possible, you can create some core cool overlays, put the video behind them, put them on a transparent background and you can just overlay them and it saves you a ton of time and money. And it's a very clear path to explaining um, how the game works. I think if you've got your game on... Um, or on an online platform like Tabletopia, Tabletop Simulator, incredibly helpful as always. Um, so people can actually get hands on with the game because at the end of the day, they're investing in something they have no idea what it is. It's just based on your, it's completely based on your explanation and your enthusiasm alone. Um, unless there is a version out there for people to play, they can only do that and read the rule book. Um, and that's not the most engaging thing to do. Like I think if you can get a Tabletopia or, or a TTS version of your game, available it is so beneficial and that's a great way to engage members of the community there are a lot of people we saw in total war rome that there are people out there willing to create these for you um which they just love being involved in the project and feeling heard and their suggestions um being put forward through their tts modules and, and bits and pieces like that obviously playthroughs and previews um that's sort of like a given one thing I will say, I wish people would just stop going to the same people over and over and over and over again. I wish we'd see more variety in the board game industry um, with those videos. I get very bored of seeing the same people saying the same things about the same type of games um, quite regularly. Um, these people are obviously great at what they do, but there's a whole world out there of influencers and I know you're always just going to default to the person with the most who gets the most views or the person you've seen on 10 other Kickstarter pages. But the thing is, they sort of end up losing their credibility after after saying the same thing about the about other games, 
that you've heard 50 times before it's just like is is their opinion really something that matters or should you go to someone that people don't necessarily hear from more regularly um i think we could do better in that department um i actually think that's that particular point is a great way to save money um yeah you know if you go to somebody and pay you know three thousand dollars for a how to play video um or you go to somebody that's like i'll do this and you know it's 500 bucks Mm -hmm. is the important thing the the influencer or is the important thing the how to play video um you know it's like yeah it's um i actually found that i i regretted some of the paid content that i you know it just felt like the person doing it had no soul and they were just (laughs) that was their job and they didn't enjoy it and it kind of came across in the video to me it just felt like you know yeah they did how to play but i mean i felt like i could have given that to any videographer that was excited to do it and it would have been better um you know and and so was it really worth a thousand dollars that i spent right so yeah no absolutely i think getting the people that really like your games makes a huge difference it's something that we did for um uh i'm trying to remember what it was a while ago so like when we released uh caesar um so back at psc games the 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 next game in the line of the in 20 minutes um we approached a bunch of co-op players a bunch of people that like to play together of course we're not going to approach people that play big euro games or or like really complicated uh strategy driven games like yes it's strategy driven but they're not the right audience so we need to we need to really make sure that we're approaching the right people for the job um and their enthusiasm naturally comes across if people genuinely like the game um it's like when someone talks about something that they really care about you can you can feel their their enthusiasm and when they're talking like you can gauge like how interested they are in that and it really if if you're if you're an empath or you can feel like other people's energy like in that sense like it really excites you as a person as well rather than someone going oh here's this next game from this company that does this and this and this and they're just it's just reading a script and just explaining very very dull uh, in a dull way so it's just um i think you're totally right there hitting the on the head you need to get people that are interested in the game they're excited about the game yeah, I have an idea. Sort of, com- kind of wrapping things up and compiling all of our ideas. We, we talked a lot about you know big IP, video games, board games, and the, the struggles that that inevitably has to get so many people uh, giving their feedback. Then we talked a little bit about listening to community and implementing what they believe is the the most important thing or the most interesting thing about your game, not what you believe as the game designer, and then trying to communicate that quickly on the page. And then we talked about different sections of the game balance Kickstarter Steam page. And one thing I, I think, as we think about these different sections, and as we're trying to customize them for individual people, the danger is that it becomes very long, as we've talked about. But I think one way around this is to almost use the front page like a menu where people could then click the image. So instead of having all the videos, you just have a, a banner that says videos here. And then they select that image, it then opens a new tab on your website, it could even be a, an update, where you then have all the, all the videos linked with a button at the very bottom that says go back to campaign and that can if it's on game found it can be uh, anchor linked to where they last were in that page so that might be a way if people want more information they can then temporarily go off the site look at some videos then go back and continue where they left off and that way it prevents the page from being super long but then it also gives people the access to the separate sections that they want to dive deeper into so that might be a solution moving forward for our listeners yeah, yeah. that's actually a cool idea GameFound even tells you how much money you make from uh, various pledge or various updates. 
they'll give you um, an understanding of how many backers you generated based on that update, which is a uh, cool. I mean, uh, we could dive deep into how that works, but uh, let's just, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty decent. That's incredibly useful. Like if you can go in there and engage which updates, like whether it was content additions, whether it was like in the game or whether it is an influencer or someone specific looking at your game that really drove home those points or some, or a stretch go unlock uh, an achievement that you've, that you've gained, like this, find out what beats there are um, in your campaign that are really driving the customers in or driving that conversion. I think super, super important. If you can get that information, that's great. Like that's incredible information to have. But uh, you want to tell us how, you know, if anybody's interested, how they can find you and what you're up to now? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So yeah, I, I so a quick run through. So yeah, I started at PSC Games, then moved to Modifius and then moved to video games. So been in a, a range of te- uh, tabletop game companies, RPG companies, and then moved over to, to video games. So it's been a really exciting transition um, moving over to video games. I love both worlds still. I love both industries. And I think I will still dip back into, into board games. Um, but like, if anybody wants to get in contact regarding um, any pointers, information, anything that I've learned from video games that I can transfer back to board games or experiences, any problems or anything, like I'm happy to help. People want to message me in the comments of your Facebook group. Yeah, I'm happy to help, happy to answer. I'm always on Facebook. So um, yeah, I'm around. Um, if anybody needs any advice for anything or if they want help with their their projects, I'm, I'm here to help um, and just transfer some of that knowledge back into the industry. That's fantastic. Awesome. Well, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. I have been wanting to chat about this again, uh, you know, just about the whole Kickstarter page layouts and, and marketing. It's uh, It really scratched an itch for me. I feel like we could have been here for hours. Like I could sit here and yeah. talk to you guys. There's so much we we only sort of scratched the surface. And I feel like we could be talking for 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 many, many more hours on this. Um, so it's just trying to get that top line in a, in a short <laughs> period of time. Yeah, well, we'll have to have you back at some point. Um, all right, well, I guess from now, or for now, let's have Robot Richard send us on out. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.